The views and opinions expressed during I and the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to I and the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. And the Triangle, and I'm speaking with Burning Coal Theater's director, Jerome Davis. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing very good. Thanks for asking. Doing very well myself. Now, you have a new production coming out, right? We do. Astonishingly, when planning the season more than a year ago, we had planned to open with this play. It's a one-girl show called A Hundred Words for Snow by the British playwright Taddy Hennessy. It was her first and to date so far only big hit. She's ridiculously young. She's in her 20s and she's already had this show on the West End, which is their version of Broadway, which is kind of an amazing, miraculous thing. So when I heard about the play a couple of years ago, I was just excited about it for the simple reason that that doesn't happen all that often, that somebody that young ends up with a play on the West End. And I was blown away by it. It's just an extraordinary piece of storytelling And because of the pandemic, we had to reconsider our season, but this play, we didn't have to reconsider because of being a one-person show, you can rehearse it much more easily than if you had 10 people in the room all trying to socially distance and wear masks and all that stuff. So it's been a bit of a blessing that we had this play scheduled at this time. Now, Jerome, of course, the question that all my listeners definitely want to hear is, how in the world are you managing to have a play during a pandemic where everyone needs to socially distance? Well, we're only having four audience members for each performance. I would do it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's very tightly controlled. The play is only an hour and 10 minutes long. And although that wouldn't seem all that relevant, it is because it means that the likelihood of someone needing to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the show is much less. And also it means that we have fewer support staff needed. We don't need a five assistant stage managers all running around or a costume or somebody helping to dress the actors between scene changes. The actor just walks out on stage and starts talking and doesn't stop till it's over. So fewer moving parts. And that has meant that it was possible for us to do the play and do it for a small group of people. Yeah, that seems like a really smart idea to keep everyone out of any kind of risk of being infected. And on that note, is your actor wearing a mask during? How do you emote around a mask? She's always six feet or more distant from the audience. And during the parts of the play where they're not blindfolded, she's in a box. I don't want to say too much about that, but she's in a giant box that they look in and see her through the box. I'm sorry, did you say blindfolded? Yeah, about 20 minutes into the play, the audience is going to be blindfolded. So the play begins and ends in this young girl's father's uh, study at their house, and he has just died very unexpectedly. He was a geography professor and somebody who loved uh, travel but never did it. He was particularly interested in the North Pole and wanted to visit the Arctic Circle at some point, and he didn't get a chance to because he died very suddenly. 
And so she decides in the play that she's going to rectify this situation by scattering his ashes at the North Pole, and off she sets. And so you can imagine that the scenes there in the study would be pretty easy for us to replicate, but the rest of the play, you know, is not going to be very easy to replicate. And so we decided that it would be better to hire a really good sound designer, which we've done, and to create a really thorough and specific soundscape and then just to blindfold the audience and let them imagine all these fantastical places and experiences that she's having. seems like you've hit on a pretty smart idea here, and that is cutting down as many moving parts as you can and reducing the audience size to have this kind of play be lean and still effective in this time. Yeah, I think that's the idea. I can't claim it from my own. There's a couple examples of it that have been happening around the world. The one that gave me the idea was something that's going on at the... Donmar Warehouse in London, which is a small theater. It's not quite as small as as ours. It's about 250 seats, but they just did a production called Blindness, which is about a pandemic, believe it or not, that causes people to go blind. And so in that one, they had a recorded voice, uh, Juliet Stevenson, the great British actress, and the audience sat in the room listening to her voice in a dark room with only a minimal lighting effects to support the storytelling. And I think that's a terrific idea, but I think our idea is better. (laughs) (laughs) That's some good confidence there. Actually, this has me wondering, though, these kinds of productions, were they always active prior to the pandemic or are they emerging in response to the new challenges that people are facing? You know, it's not an entirely new idea. I'll give you one example. I was, again, over in London. I was at this place called The Young Vic, and they have two theater spaces. In the smaller one, they did a play called Kursk, uh, which, if you remember, is the name of that Soviet submarine, or Russian submarine, I should say, that sank 20 years or so ago, and the crew was not rescued because they didn't want to let American divers go into the submarine. And so they created a piece in their small theater that was almost all sounds. There were actors in it, and there was dialogue and stuff. But what was really interesting was how thoroughly they immersed you, no pun intended, in the submarine and the sounds of the submarine. So that sort of thing has been around. People have had ideas like have executed them in very interesting ways, but now it's become maybe one of the very few possible ways of making theater safely, and certainly that's our primary goal. Yeah, the kairos of these, the timeliness of these productions is is really interesting to see, and I'm wondering if we're going to if we're going to have a lot of these works stick around after the pandemic is over, which is going to take a little bit, or if we're going to be starting to see more conventional plays for some measure of conventional art being what it is. Well, art and commerce, the fact is that people are having to cut budgets and cut staff. We haven't had to yet, thank God, but a lot of theaters have. And so I imagine that when we do come back, we'll be full steam with small cast shows, one set shows and lots and lots of creativity, which frankly is what we do best. There's an old saying that every great painting you ever saw had a frame around it, and sometimes working within a frame is the most inspirational. Are there any aspects of this upcoming play that you're excited about particularly? Well, we're doing it with two actors because we're going to do three performances a night. Play's only about an hour and 15 minutes long, but because we cut the audience down to four a performance, we 
didn't want to have our normal run is 12 performances, and that would have been 48 people. And so I thought if we could triple the number of performances, then we could get closer to 150 people. And that's still not enough, but at least it means our subscribers and regular longtime supporters will have a chance to see it if they want to. And in order to do that, we could either kill the actor, but we could either do that or we, we could double up on the casting so that they can rotate the role and not kill themselves. And because it's very vigorous, the 75 minute nonstop, very lots of talking, lots of storytelling. And as an actor, you're, you're all into it every single time, which means that if you're running through it many times, you could probably suffer burnout pretty quickly. The other thing I'm very excited about is just the story itself. So often these days, when you see a play or a musical, it's movie that has been converted into a musical or a book or a television show or a comic book even these days. And this play is just a story. It's just something that this young woman thought up. It's not based on anything. It just came right out of her head. And I think that's getting less and less common. And again, it's for economic reasons. When somebody says, I want to do a musical on Broadway, can I have $10 million to do that? The first question in the mind of the person funding it is, will there be an audience for it? And if it's Harry Potter, then you already have a pretty good idea there's going to be an audience for it. And so it's riskier, but it is critical. I don't want to pick on opera, for instance, but opera has these great composers that have all been dead for two or 300 years. And so there aren't going to be any new Mozarts uh, unless we get really lucky, you know, and somebody finds one in an attic or something. But generally speaking, the theater has survived and has remained fresh and meaningful and urgent because it has found a place for new works. And I worry that the commercial sector that we have in our country, Broadway, and it's ill, as well as the film industry, is, is pushing us further and further in the direction of only regurgitating material that has already been, stories that have already been told. Well, that makes me wonder, is it possible for a production to cut its costs, to undercut that 10 million and be able to explore new ideas that don't necessarily have ties to existing intellectual properties? Yeah, it is possible. But I think that people are afraid that when there's that much money riding, they want a sure hit. So if you say, well, it'll cost you instead of 10 million and it'll only cost you six, but there's no guarantee there's going to be an audience. I think most of them think, well, why would I do that? And I do understand the thinking. I mean, if it was my money, I'd probably be doing something similar. But the fact is that the great material, you know, who would have thought when a young Latinx man walked into somebody's office and said, I've got this great idea for a musical about Alexander Hamilton. Who would have thought that's what I want to put my money into? And yet it's quickly becoming the most successful there have been unsuccessful pieces that followed that same thing, too. So it's definitely hit or miss. But if you're in the arts to make money, you need to go see a psychiatrist real fast. That's not what happens in this industry, generally speaking. Few exceptions. But that's the creative process, right? That's often what happens. You have to bring together all these individual talents into a larger group. And then you have to square that with the idea of investors, outside sources, being able to keep the project afloat and keep it running throughout. It's always a gamble. You're always rolling the dice. 
I think that's right. Yeah. Even if it is known material, there are also plenty of examples of successful movies or books that were not successfully converted into theater or vice versa. It's not a a guarantee in either direction. It's just a safer bet if there's already a, a known audience for something. To throw a production under the bus, I heard that Spider-Man Into the Dark, despite being attached to a large brand name, of course, suffered incredible amounts of issues on a lot of its showings. Yeah. So it isn't a sure shot. No, uh, somebody will revive it someday and figure out a way to do it. And But the real issue is always, is it an interesting story? You can dress an uninteresting story up by casting movie stars or by having lots of marketing or by having big flashy sets and stuff like that. But eventually, if the story is not interesting, it's not going to hold its place in in the world for any length of time. Uh, and I think that's, that's good. You know, that's, that's sort of our, our editor, you know, history is our editor. History goes through what we think is important and goes, nah, nah, no. Yeah. That one, maybe we'll hold on to that one for a while. And it's never what you expect it to be, right? If you go back a hundred years and look at what was the big thing on Broadway or version of Broadway that existed back then, you will be astonished that none of the titles are titles you recognize. Mostly that's true 50 years ago too. So yeah, so history is kind of our editor and it's one that I think artists have to kind of honor in some ways by forcing themselves to take risks rather than worrying about the bottom line too much. Yeah, the zeitgeist is a tremendously difficult thing to capture, to to get a hold of and, and to try to build your work around. I think that your idea of just making a solid story that reaches a audience and resonates with them is probably the best way to go rather than trying to chase any trends. Right. I think so. Yeah. And how does a hundred words for snow accomplish this? Why have you chosen to put your faith behind this production? I mean, clearly it's, it's the perfect setup for this current time we live in, but anything else? Well, there is something else and it's something that I didn't know at the time when I was picking the play, obviously. So the young girl's father dies and she realized that he had wanted to do this great thing and he had not done it. And that if it was going to get done, it was going to be up to her to do it and could translate that right into the politics of today. We're reaching the end of the 60s generation who had these incredible ideals and necessary and useful ideals. And at some point, they kind of slip out of their grasp. And and I think young people today are struggling with that idea because up to that point, everyone had grown up thinking their parents were really special, you know, and suddenly you can see that, that, the, that the ideals were great, but that the execution of them maybe were not so good. And if it's going to get done, it's going to have to be done by the younger people. And so that's what this play is about. It's not about politics, but it is about that broad idea. So I think it's a very important story right now. How would you summarize that broad idea? Get off the couch. I understand. <laughs> yeah. As a young person today, I, I do understand that too. The idea of, I think, one of the parts of adulthood, and there is no one part to adulthood and becoming an adult, is the realization that your parents are people as opposed to being this kind of loftier thing above you. I mean, as of course anyone would have to see them as growing up. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Now, I have to ask this. 
how has your company dealt with the pandemic? How did all of you feel when you first realized that this was going to be a pretty historic and, and honestly scary event? And how have you been enduring it thus far? Well, we're a small company. We have three people who work every day at the theater, and that's their artistic director, which is me, the development director, which is Nathalie Tondur, and then the administrative assistant, which is Alex Prochnow. And then we have about four or five or six, depending on the month, interns who work with us on a somewhat truncated schedule. They're not here every day necessarily, but together they make up a team of people we have not had the burden of some of the larger institutions who had 30, 40, 50 people or more on staff and suddenly no income being generated at all. So we have weathered things better than many of the larger companies. I personally think that smaller is better in almost every circumstance. Adaptability there, yes. Yeah, that's right. Flexible, adaptable, lithe. There are no other instances in my life in which I'm referred to as lithe. So I'm going to hang on to that one, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But um, I mean, I do seriously believe that ultimately we might be better off, for instance, $10 million theaters in a town rather than one $10 million theater, if for no other reason than diversity, then you're going to get a, a diversity of opinion and a diversity of life experience. And yet we continue to do this in the arts of all places, which is to create these hierarchies. And the hierarchies have to do with who's got the most money, got the most audience and who's, who's on top. And I don't think that's healthy in the arts. And it wasn't how the arts were really up until the, I would say the 20s, 1920s, 1930s in the world. Before that, the arts were localized. So if you went to see a play in Arkansas, you were going to see people from Arkansas telling stories about Arkansas for people from Arkansas. And if you went to Connecticut, you'd see uh, Connecticut people. And I now I feel like we're becoming so homogenized and desperate to have these big institutions. I hear all the time, you know, you're not a world-class city unless you have this or that and a major league baseball team or something like that. And I don't, I don't know about that. I just think in some ways, when you bring a big institution like that into your culture, you're diluting the value of that culture more than you're expanding upon it. Yeah. Well, perhaps those kinds of elements, those Major League Baseball teams, certain sizes of theaters, how many such and such Michelin-starred restaurants, maybe that's more of kind of a trapping situation. The king is only as royal as his robes, or, uh, or the doctor is only as official as his spectacles and his clipboard. Yeah. And I don't want to say that I'm not in favor of quality, because I am, but I think little can be quality as well as big can, and perhaps even more so. And because when you have big in the arts, it means you have to fill seats. And when you have to fill seats, then you're going to be looking at the more mainstream material, generally speaking, unless you're in a really good situation. There are such situations around. Mostly, the bigger the institution, the more mainstream its work will become. And so I don't think it's good for the arts to have too many big institutions 
either. The pandemic has kind of said, yeah, you think that's so good, you know, having all those employees, having all that staff and all that real estate to handle, well, think again, you know, and and so this, to go back to your original question, I think we've been very fortunate that we've been able to hold on, but part of it is built in. Part of it is that idea of small and lithe and flexible and uh, human. Human. How you go into that? Well, in the theater, this is kind of getting into the high weeds here, but in the theater, there's a famous story, John Ford. You know who John Ford was? No, I don't. I would love to hear. He was a film director, mostly in the first half of the 20th century. He did a lot of Westerns. Stagecoach was his, for instance. And John Ford uh, took a film crew out to Death Valley, where there are all those great rock formations and desert and stuff. And they set up their cameras and he turned to them and said, gentlemen, we're now going to film the most interesting thing in the world, the human face. And if you look at John Ford's movies, that's what they are. They're close up after close up after close up with the occasional broad shot just to sort of set the location. And that's what theater does, right? Theater puts you in a room with another human being. To be quite honest, the further away from that human being you have to be, the less of their face you're going to get, the less of their human reactions and expressions are going to be available to you. So what do you do if your audience is so far away that they can't really see the face? You have to create spectacle, right? And that's where we get into trouble in our business because the theater is very expensive. And frankly, it doesn't do spectacle as well as film does. And in film, if you want to go to Death Valley, you just drive out to Death Valley and set up your camera. We can't do that here. You have to bring Death Valley to view. Yeah, and we have to use the imagination of the audience to do it. And the best way to do that, in my humble opinion, is by making sure that they're close to the artists not so far away from them that the human beings could be anyone having any thought or any emotion at any moment. So that's that's what I mean by human. I think that we have to be careful that we don't create venues so big. The human face is lost to us and the human voice must be amplified mechanically in order to be heard and experienced. And yet we do that. I saw this, just, there was this production of Hair on Broadway about 10 or 12 years ago. I don't know if you were old enough to have been conscious when that was happening, but it was a big, big hit. And I went up to see it. I love Hair. It's, I think it Maybe the great American score. They had everybody mic. You're setting up in the nosebleed seats, like half a mile away from the stage, and suddenly the actors come up there. Some of them are up there singing, like walking around in the aisles and stuff like that. But their voices are still coming out of the speakers, which are down on the stage. And so it was just weird, contrary to what they intended, which was to create a human moment. It had the exact opposite effect. Or alienated. Yeah, yeah. It made you feel like that you were watching something rather inhuman, and that's not good in hair, you know? Yeah, I can't imagine what like a top-down look of, of a theater production would be, considering that all this energy, all this charisma, all this heart is being projected straight out from the audience members. So if you're not at that right angle, it would be like watching a TV from the side. You get nothing but plastic and a little bit of light. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Or watching a drive-in movie from three blocks away, you know, or something like that. Exactly. It's just little blurs and images on the screen. 
Well, we have a whole season that we're going to be doing. We were scheduled to do Evita, the musical, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. We've pushed that into the spring. We're going to do it in an outdoor venue. We don't have the dates lined up yet, but sometime in May, probably. And we're going to do it as a concert, which I think will work quite well if you're rehearsing a play the less the the actors have to face each other in these times, the better. But also Evita, like most Andrew Lloyd Webber pieces, was written as a more as a concert. It's a, it's sung through from start to finish. It's not there is certainly acting involved, but it isn't I mean the whole story is told in song. And so I think doing Evita as a concert version is a good way to do it and doing it outdoors right now is a good way to do it. And then in between 100 Words for Snow, which opens on the 15th of October and runs through November 1st, and Evita, which will open sometime in May, we're going to do two one-person shows that will be performed live each night here at the theater, but filmed and shown live streamed over the internet so people can watch it from the safety of their home. But those two plays are by the African-American playwright Dale Orlander-Smith, who's just fantastic. She's been around for a while, but she's not that well-known, and her plays are magnificent. These two one-person shows are very interesting pieces. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. They're about the African-American experience in America in the latter half of the 20th century. One of them's about her relationship with her mother which was very tempestuous. And the other one is about Michael Brown and the Ferguson killing that took place in 2015. It's it's a, a series of interviews that she did with people from which she called this play. And it's quite fascinating and I think authoritative on the subject that everybody's thinking about right now. Timely. Yeah, definitely. So that's it. So thank you for having us. We appreciate this. This is my second jaunt with you and always enjoy talking with you. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1 Zion the Triangle. And I was just speaking with Burning Coal Theater's director, Rome Davis, talking about 100 Words for Snow, upcoming production that will be running in October. I believe opening night is the 15th. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. The two candidates go head-to-head tonight, though not face-to-face, each in a key battleground state. Some are still undecided, and we're going to try to take questions from as many of them as we can. Instead of a debate, the nation saw dueling primetime town halls last night. Former Vice President Joe Biden on ABC News with George Stephanopoulos and President Donald Trump on NBC News with Savannah Guthrie. NBC's decision to schedule Trump at the same time after he bowed out of the regular debate was widely criticized. A group of 100 actors and producers, some working for NBC, called it a, quote, disservice to the American public. Earlier, the Biden team announced a few positive tests among people who'd traveled with the former vice president and Senator Kamala Harris, including the senator's communications director. Harris has canceled in-person events through Sunday. Both candidates continue to test negative. Biden at the town hall emphasized the importance of safety precautions. I'm less concerned about me than the, the guys at the cameras, the people working in the, you know, Secret Service guys you drive up with, all those people. In contrast, when Trump was asked if he was tested before the first debate, he was not clear on his team's testing measures before and after his positive diagnosis. The doctor is very accurate information, and it's not only that doctor, it's many doctors. Trump argued with his interviewer repeatedly, asked again if he would denounce white supremacy. He did, quickly pivoting to blaming the left for all the violence. In fact, the FBI has said far-right violence is a greater threat. 
Trump refused to denounce QAnon, an unfounded conspiracy theory that holds Trump's fighting a secret war against a powerful and satanic ring of pedophiles led by Democrats. The president claimed little knowledge. What I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia, and I agree with that. Asked whether he would be willing to add justices to the Supreme Court, Biden said it depends on the rest of the confirmation process, but he will give a direct answer before Election Day. You got to make sure you vote and vote for a senator who, in fact, thinks reflects your general view on constitutional interpretation and vote for a president who think is more in line with you. The Judiciary Committee is on track to send Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, to the full Senate to vote the last week of October. If Barrett is quickly sworn in, she'll likely rule on election cases. Rudy Giuliani's daughter came forward to endorse Biden, as did the late televangelist Billy Graham's granddaughter, Jerusha Duford. She's with the bipartisan Not My Faith Pack. I want the world to know personally that the Jesus we serve promotes kindness, dignity, humility, and this president doesn't represent our faith. And strong words from Republican Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. The Washington Examiner obtained a constituent call where Sass said the president, quote, mocks evangelicals behind closed doors, quote, flirted with white supremacists and, quote, kisses dictators' butts. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks for listening at PacificaNetwork.org and PublicNewsService.org. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for October the 16th, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. As the election edges closer, thousands of Pennsylvania votes could be thrown out in November. Last month, the state Supreme Court handed down rulings that were seen as largely a win for Democrats. They extended the deadline for absentee ballots, allowed more ballot drop boxes, and removed the Green Party candidate from the ballot for failing to follow proper procedures. But the court also ruled that naked ballots, mail-in ballots returned without the second secrecy envelope, must be thrown out. Scott Seaborg is state director of the group All Voting is Local. He says that could be as many as 40,000 ballots in Philadelphia alone and 100,000 statewide. Those numbers are based on 2019 absentee ballot returns. And I'm hoping that all that voter education that the state and lots of other folks have done will drive that number down. In 2016, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by just 44,000 votes. Pennsylvania is one of 16 states that require a secrecy envelope for mail-in ballots. I'm Andrea Sears reporting. Multiple bills in the General Assembly aim to try to improve the voting process in Pennsylvania, including a bipartisan measure to allow county officials to start processing mail-in ballots before Election Day. Election experts, including a Secretary of State, recently spoke with Massachusetts-based Voter Protection Corps about how election night could go smoothly. During a Zoom panel, they said most people should have an easy experience voting, whether in person or by mail. But election night is likely to be more like election week, at least. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson explains her state can't open ballots, including absentee, until the morning of election day. Benson says it'll be impossible to have election night results from Michigan. Basic math is estimating that it's going to take 80 hours to count and tabulate 3.2 million ballots based on the number of machines and people we've got. The vote counting policy is very widely by state. In Massachusetts, election officials can pre-process mail and absentee ballots as soon as they arrive. Benson cautions the media to wait until the grand majority of votes are counted before calling races. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum reporting. Early voting in Massachusetts starts on Saturday. In Arkansas, it will begin on Monday. 
Neil Matthews of the League of Women Voters of Arkansas says this year there are three state issues on the ballot. Mission one is about the half-cent sales tax for the highway commission. Uh, issue two is a version of term limits proposed by the legislature. And issue three, the legislature's rewriting the rules for how citizen-initiated petitions and ballot initiatives are handled. This is PNS. COVID-19, well, it's elevated the importance of quality health care, and Hoosiers with employer-sponsored insurance are encouraged to carefully review their coverage options for 2021. Now is the time of year that open enrollment for private health insurance plans is offered for the upcoming year. President and CEO of United Healthcare in Indiana, Kim Sonnerholm, says it's a good idea to sit down and review plan offerings and take into consideration any anticipated health, lifestyle, or financial changes. Only two-thirds of people who actually go through the process spent more than an hour looking at what is available. It's broader than just health insurance and benefits. They have opportunities to enroll in dental and vision plans often and kind of overlook those additional services that their employers are making available. It's estimated that 54% of Hoosiers have employer-sponsored health care coverage. 15% are Medicare beneficiaries who also need to review coverage options for next year between now and December 7th. For Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. A self-styled militia network that has been identified as far-right reportedly has exploded in the Northwest ever since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, take it off. Explains. The Montana Human Rights Network and Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights finds that Ammon Bundy, leader of armed standoffs in Oregon and Nevada, has exploited fears over coronavirus to expand an anti-government group known as People's Rights to 20,000 followers across 16 states. Travis McAdam with the Montana Human Rights Network says local groups in this network were not formed to have civil debates about policy. They view this world as the battle between the righteous and the wicked. And frankly, there's a lot of discussion in people's rights circles about how we need to form these paramilitary militias or other similar groups to protect the righteous and to deal with the wicked. According to the report, Bundy says he wants to turn people's rights into a den of rattlesnakes to protect Americans' rights. There are about 700 members of this group in Montana. Since the report was released, Facebook has taken down pages associated with the phrase people's rights. Finally, our Diane Bernard tells us as a result of a lawsuit over water pollution from mining, a tract of land that once housed surface mines is being repurposed as a public recreation area for West Virginians. Cindy Rank is with West Virginia Highlands Conservancy, one of the groups involved in the court case. She says Alpha agreed to transfer the land to correct the pollution problems. I just hope that people see these as positive outcomes. Sometimes there are good things that come out. The 5,000-acre plot of land is part of the old Kennelton Mines and is being developed by the West Virginia Land Trust. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service, member and listener supported on great radio stations across the nation and online at publicnewsservice.org.